the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Whether you're listening from far away or next to beautiful Seneca Lake, we hope that through the reading and proclaiming of Scripture, you hear God's wisdom, challenge, and blessing for you today. If you're able to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9.30, we at Hector Presbyterian Church would love to share Christ's peace with you. A reading from the book of Numbers. Listen for God's word to you. Korah is our son. Kohath's grandson and Levi's great-grandson with Dathan and Ibram and Eliab's son and An, Pellet's son, descendants of Reuben, rose up against Moses, along with 250 Israelite men, leaders of the community, chosen by the assembly, men of reputation. They assembled against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far because the entire community is holy, every last one of them, and the Holy One is with them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the Holy One's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Moses spoke to Korah and all his community. In the morning, the Holy One will make known who is God's own, who is holy, and who is able to approach the altar. The one whom God chooses as God's own is the one who will be able to approach the altar. This is what must be done. Korah and your entire community, take censers for yourselves. Tomorrow, put them, put fire in them and place incense on them in the presence of the Holy One. Whomever the Holy One chooses, that one is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses said to Korah, listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that Israel's God has separated you from the Israelite community to allow you to approach the altar, to perform the service of the Holy One's dwelling, and to serve before the community by ministering for them? The Holy One has allowed you and all your fellow Levites with you to approach the altar, yet you also seek the priesthood. Thus you and your entire community have assembled against the Holy One. But Aaron, what is he that you complain about him? Moses said for Dathan and Abram and Eliab's son. And they said, we won't come up. Isn't it enough that you brought us up from the land full of milk and honey to kill us in the desert so that you also dominate us? Moreover, you haven't brought us to a land full of milk and honey, nor given us the inheritance of field and vineyard. Would you also gouge out our eyes of these men? We won't come up. Moses became very angry, and he said to the Holy One, Pay no attention to their offering. I haven't taken a single donkey from them, nor have I wronged any one of them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading comes to us from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Listen, the message of the cross is foolishness to human wisdom, but for us it is the wisdom and power of God. Now I encourage you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, agree with each other and don't be divided into rival groups. 
Instead, be restored with the same mind and the same purpose. My brothers and sisters, Chloe's people gave me some information about you, that you are fighting with each other. What I mean is this, that each of you says, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? Thank God that I didn't baptize any of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, uh, I baptized the house of Stephanus, too. Otherwise, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. And Christ didn't send me to preach the good news with clever words so that Christ's cross won't be emptied of its meaning. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed. But it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. Brothers and sisters, I could not talk to you like spirit-filled people, but like people without the spirit, like babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink instead of solid food because you weren't up to it yet. Now you are still not up to it because you are still without the spirit. When jealousy and fighting exist between you, aren't you against the spirit and living by human standards? When someone says, I belong to Paul, and someone else says, I belong to Apollos, aren't you acting like people without the spirit? After all, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants who helped you to believe. Each one had a role given to them by the Lord. I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Because of this, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But the only one who is anything is God, who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together, but each one will receive their own reward for their own labor. We are God's co-workers, and you are God's field, God's building. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Korah was cold. Ice cold. That's what his name meant in the language of his people. But more importantly, that's how he chose to live. Cold. Disconnected. Icing others out. He would have fit right in at a church I heard about. A church with two sets of tableware and cutlery. 
Each set belonged to rival groups in the congregation. Once upon a time, someone had broken a plate or misplaced a spoon. Instead of talking it through, a whole community decided that the best way to keep the peace was to keep two sets of dishes under lock and key. Maybe that sounds silly to you. I know it does to me. But Korah would have felt right at home because in our churches and in our families, so often we resign ourselves to coldness. I learned about coldness from my mother's side of the family. Don't get me wrong, they are lovely people. But they taught me that the very worst thing was a fiery conflict. Better to keep your cool and stuff your feelings down deep. Better to put on a sweater when the emotional temperatures drop rather than get burned. Korah and his family, descendants of grandfather Kohath ben Levi, were important people in the Israelite community. They carried God's movable sanctuary on the Israelites' circuitous route through the Sinai Desert. When it was time to continue the journey, this branch of Israel's family tree transported the dishes for offering, the lampstands, the whole kit and caboodle. They carried the chest containing the stone tablets on which God wrote the Ten Commandments. It was an awesome responsibility. But there was a catch. They could move the disassembled tent of meeting, but they could not touch it. The same chapter of Numbers that assigns Korach's family this responsibility also describes how Aaron and his sons, Israel's priests, covered everything in the sanctuary with cloth and fine leather. Only after everything was secured could the road crew move it. They will not touch the sanctuary, said the Holy One to Moses and Aaron, lest they die. But wait a minute. Moses and Aaron were also grandsons of Kohath ben Levi. Their father, Amram, was Ishar's brother. Cousin Korach didn't see how either of them were any better than him. Rabbis throughout the ages have used oceans of ink to describe Korach's cold heart. Yes, in his confrontation with Moses, he claimed the entire community is holy every last one of them, and the Holy One is with them. But Korach didn't really care about the whole community. All he cared about was himself. 
That's why nestled among the ethical teachings of the Perkevot in the Mishnah, one rabbi said, any dispute that is for the sake of heaven is destined to endure. Any dispute that is not for the sake of heaven is not destined to endure. Which is a dispute for the sake of heaven? The disputes of Hillel and Shammai. What is a dispute that is not for the sake of heaven? The dispute of Korah and all his company. Korah's attempt to ice out Aaron as priest was a power grab. He may have dressed it up in the language of a righteous cause, a dispute for the sake of heaven, but it was never about the well-being of the whole people. I wonder, though, whether those 250 folks who followed Korah thought they were joining a righteous crusade. I'm not thinking about uh, Dathan and Aviram here. We heard how bitterly they felt about unmet expectations. They didn't want to be priests. They wanted to be comfortable. Weren't we promised fields and vineyards? Weren't we promised a land overflowing with milk and honey? No, I am thinking about the 250 Israelites who stood with Korah, leaders of the community, chosen by the assembly, men of reputation. These are not rabble-rousers. They are respected leaders. They are good people coalescing around Korov's cold heart. I think about the church with two sets of dishes. Those people are probably upstanding citizens. They are probably loving husbands and wives and neighbors. And yet, they too let coldness creep in. Call it coldness. Call it sin. Call it Adam and Eve's disobedience warping human history. Whatever name you give it, you know how beating hearts grow cold. The chill sets in. Conflicts harden into resentments. The chasms between people grow wide. Whatever you call it, you know the paradox, that it is bigger than us and that we let it happen. I felt coldness sweep over me the other day when I watched video footage of two police officers in Buffalo shoving a 75-year-old man to the ground. I saw Martin Gugino hit the pavement, saw the blood seep from his head. And with thousands other Americans, I witnessed so many police officers, good people, I'm sure, walk right past. At one point, an officer begins to 
attempt to help Gugino, but one of his colleagues grabs him to keep moving. Sin needs to keep its ranks frozen in their place. I imagine that officer lying awake in bed, unable to sleep, turning the events of that evening over and over in his mind. I wonder if he has ever heard Paul's frustrated words from his letter to the Romans, or if he would say the same thing about himself. I don't know what I am doing because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the thing I hate. In that letter, Paul argues that it is sin lurking within each person that causes us to devalue and damage one another. But that doesn't mean Paul thinks sin is limited to individuals. Sin affects and infects whole communities. Like frost on a window pane, it branches out in tiny icy tendrils. Like a drafty window or a gap in the insulation, sin chills the entire room. I'd like to say that I would stop to check on Gugino to call an ambulance for him. Maybe I would. But that video footage reflects back to me every time I have walked by a suffering person and have done nothing. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he knew how disconnected from each other they had become. We heard last week how clinging to wealth and class divided the community when they met to eat the Lord's Supper. This week, we hear about rival groups unable to find common ground. Icy, cold contentions derail good intentions of well-meaning people. To them, Paul writes, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. The good news, the gospel, is what God has done in the world. Loved it freed it, restored it to new life. When I feel helpless, when a community cannot move through conflict, when a whole society perpetuates such a deadly ideology as white superiority, when sin enslaves us all, God shows up. What's more, God shows up on a cross. For people in Corinth and people all around the ancient Mediterranean, a cross isn't something that you would fashion into a, a piece of jewelry or sign on your body as a blessing. A cross is a public means of execution. Crosses were built to be seen. They were visible reminders 
of the civil authority's power. A crucified body, slowly suffocating to death, sent a message. This could happen to you. So keep a cool head and stay in line. That God would show up on a cross is foolishness. It is a scandal. This is a place of utter powerlessness, not a place for the creator of the cosmos. But for those of us who are being saved, Paul wrote, the message of the cross is the power of God. In the story of cold-hearted Korah, God appears in a furious blaze of glory. It is a terrifying story. God first wants to consume all of the Israelites in flame, but settles for punishing the rebels. The earth swallows Korah, Dathan, and Avriram alive. Divine fire decimates those 250 leaders dutifully offering incense. This appearance of the Holy One makes me furrow my brow. But it also makes me think of words that Holocaust survivor and scholar Elia Wiesel spoke to Congress at the turn of the last century. Reflecting on his own Jewish tradition, he remarked how to be abandoned by God was worse than being punished by God. Better an unjust God than an indifferent God. For Wiesel, indifference to suffering is what renders human beings inhuman. Indifference, he said, is more dangerous than anger and hatred. Anger can at times be creative. One writes a great poem, a great symphony. One does something special for the sake of humanity because one is angry at the injustice one witnesses. But indifference is never creative. And indeed, the anger of the Holy One creates as well as destroys. In this same Torah portion, which Jewish communities will read just two weeks from now, God causes a staff belonging to Aaron to put forth green shoots, to blossom and produce almonds. I wonder if Paul considered sharing the story of Korach and his partisans with the Corinthians. But like Moses, he turns their attention to God, no longer exercising destructive power or generative power, but hanging powerless from a cross the victim of human indifference. Here is Jesus Christ, God's own heart, not cold, but beating in time to the pain of others. 
Here is Jesus Christ, God's word, unwilling to stay silent in the face of his people's suffering. Here is Jesus Christ, God's son, choosing to stay connected to us even though we have iced him out. On the cross, God dares us to look, dares us to acknowledge the violent outcome of human brokenness, dares us to see the extravagant love that the Holy One has for us in spite of it all. It is a scandal to some. It is foolishness to others. But to borrow from the rabbis, the cross is a dispute or a challenge for the sake of heaven. For when we meet it, when our hearts break at the sight of the crucified God, we might yet feel blood course through our veins and feel compassion for the suffering of one another. No person or community is beyond the redemptive love of God. I believe that includes churches, even churches with two sets of dishes locked away in icy hearts. I believe that includes cities and states and whole communities, whole countries, even countries like ours with deep divisions and deeper wounds. I believe Paul when he says that we are God's field because God is not only the fire that consumes, and God is not only the victim that saves. God is the master gardener, the one who makes things grow. I wonder, I wonder, friends, what God will grow among us today and in the weeks ahead. I suspect that we will recognize the fruit of God's labors in deeds of love and joy, in words of peace and patience, in expressions of kindness and goodness, in lives of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Such fruit of the Spirit is grace, growing from the frozen earth, blossoming and budding in our hearts no less than in our halls of power. For such grace, surprising grace, amazing grace, let us give all glory and gratitude to God, from whom all things come, through whom we live, to whom we belong, body and soul. Amen.